0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. Today was a really cool Sunday for us. We did some interesting and different things. Uh, Number one, we had an acoustic band, like the the lineup was more acoustic. Um, What that means is we had a guest singer. Her name was Michaela. Uh, She sang and then played Cajon, which is like this cool box drum you sit on. Uh, Peter played acoustic guitar and Noel played ukulele and sang background vocals and that's it Usually we have a full drum kit and bass and electric guitar And it was really cool to kind of strip things back and just chill and kind of hear the voices in the room a little more than usual Um, so I really loved it and uh, I thought it'd be cool to share one of the songs We actually opened with this little tune by Bob Marley that you might know Um, Check it out. Enjoy it. If you're not into it at all, just skip ahead like three minutes and get back to the regular podcast. We
1: just want to get happy on this Sunday morning. Make out your little anthem for
0: the week. <laughs> that was Three Little Birds, a Bob Marley song, and that was Noel whistling, and that was, that was such a cool way to start the service off. So that was really cool. Uh, another interesting and different thing we had today was we had a guest speaker. Um, it's the first time that this guy has ever spoken at Different, and I was blown away. It was so, so good. His name is Josh Chan. Um, you're going to love what he has to say here in just a second. But before we get to that, uh, just a couple of housekeeping sort of things. We are starting our summer session of small groups literally this week. We've got uh, groups on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. There is a Tampa group, a St. Pete group, and a virtual group. And we would love for you to be a part of any of those that you are interested in. Uh, you can go to diff.church to sign up, or you can just email hannah at diffchurch.com um you don't have to attend every week there's no cost there's no book to buy there's no pre-work to do we just kind of talk about the messages from that week and uh, along the way you know there's like fun nights thrown in where you just hang out and don't do anything spiritual although what could be more spiritual than hanging out. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And also this coming Saturday, we are hanging out at Dog Bar in St. Pete. Don't bring your kids. They're not allowed, but please bring your fur babies and uh, hang out with some church people and get to know them a little bit better. Um, Okay, that is it. Uh, Let's jump to Josh Chan. Uh, I'm going to let Hannah kind of introduce him here. uh, But the only thing you need to know is that he is in seminary
1: which, bless him. <laughs> I've been there, it's a hard road. So um, he, I actually asked him to come and speak today and I think he has something just so valuable and his perspective is so great that you are really gonna enjoy him. Um, so I'm gonna bring him up here, give him a hand.
2: All right, morning everybody. Uh, morning. My name is Josh, um, as Hannah said, my wife Jamie and I have been coming in for different for a little over a year, mostly virtually, but we've started coming more in person, so when Hannah asked me to speak, um, I was very happy to say yes to that. Um, so today's topic is on taking stands for justice. Uh, I know it's a big topic, admittedly, uh, but what I hope to demonstrate uh, with a brief time here today is that you and I, normal people in the normal course of our lives, we can take stands for justice too. And whenever we do that, God stands with us. Um, we know throughout history there have been individuals who have taken spectacular types of stands for justice. Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa are good examples of that and history remembers them for, for their contributions. But what about normal people in the everyday? You know, you and I, we might not win the Nobel Peace Prize, for example, um, and, which by the way, if you do, you can, uh, that's good for you and you can call me out on Twitter later. Um, But the rest of us normal people we might not have a lot of power or influence Um, but what i think the bible tells us is that yes god is present during the spectacular acts of justice but god's also present in the everyday acts of justice that you and i get to be a part of so today's uh passage is from exodus chapter one if you're familiar with exodus you know that exodus is a book where god rescues the israelites out of oppression and slavery uh, towards having their own nation and their own land Um, you might remember Pastor Hannah last week talking about how important the land is to the Israelite history. And so this is the beginning of that history. And since Exodus is, a, is about oppression and the freedom from oppression, justice is a big theme in the book, as is a big theme in many books in the Bible. Um, many of us might know the story of Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. Moses' birth takes place actually in chapter 2, but today we're looking at chapter 1 before Moses was even born. Uh, This brings up an interesting point because the writer of Exodus is clearly telling us that yes, God used Moses to bring the Israelites out of oppression and slavery, um, but the story of the Israelites' freedom really started before Moses was even born. I'll come back to that. So let me read for us uh, Exodus chapter 1 starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon. Levi, Judah, Isaac, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Neptali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then the new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they would become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all the harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the background of this story, you might know that Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And at the end of the first book, Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. Uh, but because of his ability to interpret dreams, which later predicted a famine, uh, Joseph was put in second in command in Egypt next to Pharaoh. And due to Joseph's leadership, Egypt was more prepared for the famine than the surrounding nations around it. And then, therefore, during the famine, uh, the nations came to Egypt for food. Uh, This prompted Joseph's brother and father to to all come to Egypt for food, reuniting the the family in a little bit of an awkward family reunion, Um, but it was a happy reunion nevertheless. So at the end of Genesis, the Israelites were welcome guests, but they were in a foreign land. So our passage then picks up by saying that those people, Joseph and that Pharaoh at the time, have all died, and along with it, the good relations between the Israelites and the Egyptians, that's all gone too. And there's a new king in charge of Egypt, and he doesn't like the Israelites very much. He decides that he needs to do something about them. Notice the the language that the king uses here. And whenever someone wants to justify an act of injustice, or make an excuse for it, so to speak, it's very common to use this type of language. You might have picked up on how I read the passage earlier, but the king really paints a picture of an us-versus-them type of situation. You know, We're the better people. They don't deserve anything. We need to do something about them. So notice the language here as as I read the king's speech again. The Israelites, they, have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal truly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. The king also uses fear. Everything that the king said was hypothetical. There's nothing in the text that suggests that that scenario would play out. But the king paints a very scary picture for his people so that, they, so that he can justify uh, his acts of injustice towards another people. So injustice can happen when a group pits itself against another group, usually with less power, and then uses fear to perpetuate uh, the fire. But injustice doesn't have to stop with the Bible. We hear them, that in our society very common commonly. We hear of mentality like we shouldn't let these people in the country because we shouldn't let these people in the neighborhoods because, and we all know what's being talked about here when those situations come up. We pit one group against another with less power and we use fear to perpetuate injustice against another group's humanity. The church does it too, hopefully not different church. Um, But for a long time, the broader church has excluded people from congregations and from leadership positions pitting one group against another group with less power, and using fear to commit injustice against another group's humanity. And if we think more personally into our lives, I'm sure we can all think of circumstances where we see other people, or even ourselves, experience different kinds of injustice, unfair treatment by broader society or by other people. It can even be something as common as a homeless person asking for money but keeps getting ignored or a boss making an inappropriate comment about somebody or a group no one just wants to stand up to the boss because they're the boss it can be really common in our everyday lives think about the us versus them who are the ones without the power and the more we focus on those without power the more we'll see injustices around us I want to tell you a story from when I used to live in Chicago this was about 10 years ago I would work downtown and I would walk home every night to my apartment. And every day at this intersection, there would be the same homeless person standing there asking for money. His body would never move, but as people walked by, he would ask people quietly for money. And most people would ignore him. I would imagine some people would have said derogatory things towards him as they walked by. I tried to talk with him for a few minutes every time I see him and and give him some money from time to time, and I know other people had done the same thing. One day, as I was talking to my friend, a police car pulled up, and instead of turning the corner, the officers decided to get out of the car and ask this man for his ID. And in the ensuing minutes, the officers would issue him a ticket that he later told me would take him a few weeks of asking for money to pay off. The officers got in the car and drove away. Now, I have no reason to doubt that the officers' actions were legal under the law, but they were unjust. The man wasn't bothering anyone and the officers could easily have just driven by and turned the corner like every other car. But instead they chose to stop the car and get out and in five minutes they would negatively impact this man's life for the next few weeks. When you have a choice, you choose to harm somebody just because you can and because no one else can stop you, that's a pretty classic case of injustice in my book. Now during the whole ordeal, I was frozen in place some distance away just shocked at the whole thing and not knowing what I could do about it. I knew that there was something wrong that was happening right in front of me, but I didn't know what I could do. Maybe this feeling sounds familiar to some of you. Just don't know what to do about something that is clearly so wrong. So I ended up just standing there and doing nothing. At one point, my friend looked up at me, and I'll never forget the expression on his face. He didn't really talk too much about it afterwards, but if I can put some words into his expression, it would be like he was telling me, I know there's not a lot you can do right now, but I'm really wishing that I wasn't so alone. You see, there's complexity on my side too. As a colored person, I know the reality that every other colored person knows, which is that if I interfere with the police in any way, society gives them the license to escalate things against me real fast. My friend understood this reality, But I think he was also holding out some hope that maybe I would find some way to stand up for him so he wasn't so alone. He knew that I couldn't do anything about the ticket. That wasn't the issue. But he was probably hoping that I would take an action that would demonstrate that I was on his side. But instead, I was just frozen and I didn't do anything. As I reflected over on this event years later, I came to understand more about why he felt what he did. You see, every day he stands at the same corner asking for money and people walk by, ignoring him, pretending they don't see him, or even saying bad things to him. So he knows by experience that most people he encounters could care less about his existence or his well-being. That was a given. But there were a few people who did seem to care. And in his moment of greatest need, when he was confronted by the officers, he must have hoping that somehow I would find a way to stand up with him so that he wasn't so alone. Maybe he felt that most people would ignore me and that makes sense, but maybe this guy would care. Maybe he would stand up for me so that I'm not alone. But unfortunately, at that time, I did just about the same thing as everyone else who'd just walked by. Now, whatever I would have done, maybe it's to say something or maybe it's to record the incidents, that would have entailed some risk. There will always be risks to stand up against injustice because unjust people tend not to like opposition while there are risks, comes a time when the cost of inaction is greater than the risk. Because every time we stand by and do nothing against injustice, our inaction tears away at the hope of the oppressed. And we need to take an active stance against injustice. I'm not bringing all this up to discourage us, but instead if we're aware of how pervasive injustice is, maybe we can realize also how many opportunities we have right where we are to stand for justice. We don't have to be part of a major justice movement, although those can be great. But the more pervasive injustices around us, the more chances there are for normal people like you and me, maybe even during our commute, maybe even at work, to stand for justice in our everyday lives. Fortunately, in today's passage in Exodus, we have an example of people taking stands for justice in their position of very limited power. The Hebrew midwives has limited power because of a number of factors. First. They were Hebrew. We already were told in the passage that they're enslaved people at the time. Second, they were women. We know that in patriarchal societies, there are hindrances to women exercising their power at nearly every turn. And third, there was a difference in position. If somebody has the power to order you to kill somebody and you don't do that, chances are they can order somebody else to kill you. It's not that far of a stretch. So the Hebrew midwives, normal people in their position of very limited power, we were told to commit an act of injustice. But what they lacked in power, they made up for in the immovable conviction in the God of justice. They knew that this God of justice would not approve of these killings. So in that pivotal verse 17, it says, because the midwives feared God, they ultimately let the boys live. So their fear or their reverence for God was what drove their decision to resist injustice. So when they, normal people, Stood up for justice, God showed up. Why do I say this? Well, notice how for 16 verses up until that point when it talked about the midwives fearing God, that God was not actually mentioned at all in this passage. It's almost like the writer of Exodus was telling us that during the time of oppression, it's like God was absent. Now, I'm not saying God wasn't there because I think the Bible teaches that God is everywhere. But for oppressed people living in oppressive environments, it sure feels like God's absent. The hollow silence of oppression. I think Exodus understands that. But that all changed when the two midwives, Shiphrah and Pua, decided that they, normal people, in their normal position, were going to stand for justice. For the longest time, it feels like God was absent until they took a stand for justice and God showed up. God was mentioned for the first time in verse 17, and God would be mentioned two more times in the passage that we just read. And obviously, God would show up in an even bigger way in the rest of Exodus to take the entire nation of Israel out of oppression toward freedom. So see, this is why Exodus didn't start with chapter 2. Right? If the point of Exodus is about Moses taking the Israelites out of oppression, then sure, it makes sense to start with Moses' birth. But chapter 1 is chapter 1 of Exodus because Exodus is about the God of freedom and the God of justice. And when normal people, like the Hebrew midwives like you and I take stands for justice, God shows up and God can show up in a big way. If you notice in the passage, Chipra and Pua are given the ultimate dignity and honor of having their names remembered for all generations, whereas the king of Egypt remains nameless. God sees these actions. I wanna bring this closer to home by mentioning the civil rights movement, the most notable justice movement in the country's history. We all know of Dr. Martin Luther King, who challenged the conscience of the nation and inspired us all with the vision of justice and love for all. Clearly, the focus was on the historical and ongoing oppression against black Americans in the country. But Martin Luther King didn't start the civil rights movement. It was started by the combined actions of normal, everyday people as they stand for justice. Joanne Robinson, a uh, local college professor, and her women's political council tried for years to change the conditions on Montgomery's segregated public buses where black passengers were routinely physically and verbally assaulted. Rosa Parks, a seamstress tired from a day's work, refused to compromise her, her humanity for one more day. And she did not give up a seat to a white man who was demanding her seat because all the whites only seats were taken at that time. After Ms. Parks' arrest on a Friday, Ms. Robinson and other community leaders organized a one-day bus boycott for the following Monday coinciding with Ms. Parks' trial. During the boycott, taxi drivers drove passengers at a much reduced rate and car owners drove other people at their own expense. I don't know how much money an average taxi driver lost that day, but what they gained was dignity for themselves and for everybody who sat at their back seat. Following the rousing success of the one-day boycott, the community leaders decided to continue the boycott and they needed a leader to organize the efforts going forward only at that point did they select a pastor who wasn't even expecting the job martin luther king ended up leading the movement going forward you see rosa parks did not know she would spark a movement that would change the world she only stood up or in her case she stayed seated for justice right where she was taxi drivers did not know that they would play a major pivotal role in the movement. They only gave to justice from what they had. Hebrew midwives did not know that they would end up being chapter one of Exodus. They only stood up for justice right where they were. Where are some opportunities in your life to stand for justice? Where are some places to take a risk? Because you know that when you look into the eyes of someone under oppression, that standing off to the side, inaction and sympathy are just not enough. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular, but whenever you take a stand for justice, God would be there. Fittingly, let's end with a quote from Dr. King. It's a longer one, but in it, he contemplates his death and how he would like to be remembered. Two months after giving this sermon, he would be killed. I encourage you to check out on YouTube... This drum major instinct sermon, this section is towards the back. Here are his words. Dr. King says, Every now and then, I guess we all think realistically about that day when we will all be victimized with what is life's final common denominator. That's something we call death. We all think about it. And every now and then, I think about my own death. And I think about my own funeral. And I don't think of it in a morbid sense Every now and then I ask myself, what, what is it that I want said? And I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then, I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry and I want you to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison and I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity end quote justice doesn't have to be spectacular we as regular people have opportunities right where we are to stand up for justice and to stand alongside those who are oppressed. So church, go out there. Go love somebody today. Go stand up for justice today because the world needs it. And as you do, God will be with you. Blessings, everybody.